Well, good morning, and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, and we welcome you online as well. Glad you could worship with us um, as we begin this Advent season. And thank you to the volunteers who uh, just decorate our church and, and the creative team that puts together our stages and um, just makes this time a, a, a festive feel to it. So glad you could join us, um, and for those of you down in F3 as well. Um, the humble king who left his throne in glory, the wonderful truth of the incarnation. Why did Jesus step down from heaven? Of all the amazing things, to have that position of glory and come down to earth as the humble servant. Over the next few weeks, we're, we're taking a little break from Romans, and um, we want to look at the, the, the words of Jesus in his own words, why he came to earth. And there's a lot of places in the scripture where that's explained. So for instance, John chapter 6, verse 38 says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or Luke 19, 10 said, for the Son of Man has come, to seek and to save that which is lost. In his own words, he's telling us why he came. Well, take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to another passage, Luke chapter 4, where in his own words, he explains why he came. Luke chapter 4, and we'll start with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And then verse 16 says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In verse 20 says, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, um, this would have been a passage of scripture that the Jewish people would have been aware of. It's a messianic passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 61. And as he quotes that, obviously all eyes are fixed on him. What will he say in regards to this passage? And then to say what he did, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, remarkable words. Now, to appreciate these words, we need to look back into the context. In chapter 3, Luke is, the last part of chapter 3, the last paragraph of chapter 3, Luke gives the um, genealogy of Jesus. And you'll notice in the genealogy account, verse 38, the last verse of chapter 3 ends with um, uh, this 
final line. Literally, it says, of Enosh, of Seth, of Adam, of God. Our translations add the son of. But it simply says, of Enosh, of Seth, of Adam, of God. And by writing it that way, immediately people's attention as they're reading this should go to that last person of the lineage, Adam, of Adam. Luke records then immediately following, drawing our attention to Adam, the last verse in chapter 3, he starts in chapter 4 with the account of the temptation of Jesus in, um, in the wilderness. So why would Luke bring the genealogy to Adam and then immediately take us to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where he's battling Satan? Well, because I think Luke wants us to see there's a connection between Adam and Jesus. There's this connection there. Let's not forget that Adam had a very similar encounter with Satan as Jesus had in the wilderness. Um, Satan comes into the beautiful, perfect setting of Eden, and he tempts Eve with that forbidden fruit, right? He says, um, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is... God is mistaken, or, or he's, he's pulling the wool over your eyes, Eve. You surely shall not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Satan says, or the text says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. There's, there's really nothing new under the sun. Satan's tactics, they're as old as the Garden of Eden. The lust of the flesh, she, she saw that it was, it was tasty food. The lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. The boastful pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. Satan's tactics, his strategies, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And Adam, who was with her, knowingly the command of God not to take of that forbidden fruit, succumbed to the temptation of Satan, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And he plunged all of creation into sin. Satan conquered Adam. Adam was defeated. And every human being born after Adam followed in his footstep. Death now reigned, just like God had warned, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, immediately after drawing our attention to Adam, Luke records this temptation of Jesus. He purposefully, I think, wants to set in in um, opposition or makes this connection between Adam and Jesus. And the similarities uh, should not be missed. Um, there are uh, very interesting similarities. Uh, just like the temptation in Genesis chapter 3 in the account there that we just read, Satan comes 
and he tempts Jesus in exactly the same way. The master deceiver comes to Jesus, propelled or compelled to go into the wilderness, and um, what was successful against the first Adam, why it's worth trying against the second Adam, against Jesus. And so what do we see? The lust of the flesh. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Uh, the lust of the eye. Um, see all these kingdoms, verse 6. I'll give it to you all. It's been given to me, and I'll, I'll let you have it all. Just, just worship me. The boastful pride of life. Verse 9, he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Throw yourself down from this temple and prove to all your greatness. Satan comes in exactly the same way as he was victorious over the first Adam, and he seeks to battle and succumb or overcome Jesus, the second Adam. Now, the similarities are there, but the differences can't be missed either. The second temptation here in the wilderness is different than the first. You look at the differences up here. You see in the first Adam, he was tempted in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. Jesus, the second Adam, was tempted in, the, in, the darkness, in, the, in that realm of Satan in the wilderness. Adam, Satan comes and he twists God's word. Indeed, has God said? But the second Adam, Jesus battles Satan effectively by using God's word. In the first Adam, Satan is victorious. With the second Adam, Satan is defeated. You see, there's no mistake that when Luke is writing this account, as he gives the genealogy of Jesus in the last part of chapter 3, he ends with, of Enish, of Seth, of Adam, to draw our attention to the fact that something different is happening. Because the second Adam has come. And tempted in the same way as the first Adam, he's the victor. Now, Luke, as he writes this, we know Luke was a traveling companion to Jesus. And um, we also know that Luke's uh, account that he wrote here, his gospel account, was written after Paul wrote the letter to the Romans that we've been studying. No doubt that Luke was greatly influenced by the Apostle Paul. And so as Luke is writing these accounts, I have to believe that the things that Paul wrote in the book of Romans were on the mind of Luke as he writes his gospel account. Uh, one of those passages in the book of Romans that I think uh, probably was on Luke's mind as he writes his gospel is that passage in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, 
So death spread to all men because all sinned. The first Adam is the focal point here. And it was through that first Adam, Paul writes, that sin entered the world because of the temptation. And along with sin came death. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve didn't drop over dead the moment they took of that fruit. But there was death that took place. Death meaning alienation from the life of God separation from the life of God. And death did occur. Through one man, sin entered the world, and ultimately, death through sin. And then it says, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Adam was the representative of all humanity. And somehow, mysteriously, all humanity was in Adam. Everybody born since Adam is identified with Adam, as we've seen in our study of Romans. And what was true then of Adam became true of everybody who was born into the world. Adam opened the door to the reign of death, to the reign of sin. Now, the first Adam brought about this spiritual death into the world, and eventually physical death. Though Adam was the one who actually sinned, all men, all mankind after that experiences the death of of sin, the reign of sin. We're all going to die because we're all identified in Adam. We're all born in Adam and have continued to do so right up to this present time. But Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5, as we saw a couple of months ago, and he also says this, and it's a stark contrast, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. On the one hand, you have Adam. Along with Adam comes sin and death. But, strong contrast, along comes the second man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ comes the gift of his grace. Grace abounds to many. And so in the, the following verses, what Paul has done in Romans chapter 5, as we saw a number of months ago, is set up this, this contrast. In Adam, there is judgment and condemnation. In Christ, there is justification. The first Adam brought the reign of death. The second Adam, the reign of life. The first Adam brought condemnation. And if you'll Remember in our study of Romans, that word condemnation means a servitude to sin. The sentence of God was pronounced on mankind, and it was that you will serve sin. Sin will reign. Sin will master you. But Jesus brought about the, the, the justification of life, the reign of life. In the first Adam, it says many are made sinners. In the second Adam, we are made righteous. Jesus comes to this earth and he gives us the gift of his righteousness as a free gift to all those who believe in him. And so Adam, the first Adam, you got the reign of sin. And the second Adam, you have the reign of grace. Now what Luke in his gospel account I think is doing is wanting us to see is this tie back from Jesus to Adam, the contrast. He does it, yes, to approve the humanity of Jesus. That's one of 
the reasons why Luke wrote this gospel. He is the Son of Man. He is fully man, and he understands the heart and the, the pain and the, and the turmoil and the troubles of mankind because he was fully identified with mankind. He was of Enosh. He was of Seth. He was of Adam, who was created of God. But Luke also wants to set up this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam by showing us through these identical attacks by Satan, the attack on the first Adam, the attack on the second Adam, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, that Jesus came away the victor. There may have been defeat in the garden, but Luke is writing, there is victory in the wilderness, even on Satan's own turf. And because Jesus was victorious, there's hope. Now, let's go back to Luke's gospel, chapter 4. And we'll pick up the story as Luke writes it. Uh, returning from this triumph in the garden, uh, Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth, uh, where he was brought up. And as would be the custom on the Sabbath, you would go to the synagogue and um, scriptures would re be read. Rabbis would read the scriptures. And, and Jesus comes to that place and he's given the book of Isaiah to read. And as he's reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, the words are, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus, in his own words, tells the mission of hope. He explains this new beginning, this new age. Today, in your hearing, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, sight to the blinded, the favorable year of the Lord. Now again, that was a message from Isaiah chapter 61. That was a messianic message. All the Jews understood these were the words of, of the coming one, of the coming Messiah. That was their hope that one day this, this earthly king, this Messiah, would come to earth and, and would deliver them from the oppression of the day. And the day that uh, this is being written, the day that Jesus spoke those words, it was the Roman oppression. I've come to preach the good, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, re recovery of sight to the, to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim this is the favorable year of the Lord. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Messianic truth. The reign of life, the reign of hope, Jesus said, had begun today. Christ was not defeated in the wilderness. Christ was victorious over Satan. 
Satan, the master deceiver, was not successful with the second Adam as he was against the first Adam. And now there's hope that sin's curse will be broken. This is what Luke is trying to communicate as he weaves these passages together. Now the full impact of Jesus' words were not evident in his first coming. And so we know from Scripture that um, it is yet to be fulfilled. In fact, as Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 61, he stopped halfway through that verse where it says, and the day of judgment is coming. Uh, Jesus appeared on this earth as Messiah to offer hope, to offer life. But the full impact of his messianic work yet remains. Now, we'll get to that in our study of Romans when we go to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But there's a sense in which his words are certainly applicable for us today. Today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. That was spoken 2,000 years ago. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. Everybody born in this world is born in Adam, as we have explained in our study of the book of Romans. But our second birth places us in Christ. It's the favorable year of the Lord that begins in our life the moment we trust Him as our Savior. I read this week the story of a, of a young man by the name of Farouk who is from a country in southern Asia. It's a compelling story. As a young boy, he and his family were forced to flee their home because of, of uh, raiders that were coming to, to burn and, and steal, to, to kill. Farouk remembers the terror in his mom's eyes as she hurried him along as they were fleeing their village. Move faster, move faster. He has imprinted in his mind the, the anger, the, the rage in his father's eyes as they were forced to settle in a, in a displacement camp. And that's where he grew up. That's where Farouk learned himself how to hate, how he experienced hopelessness and despair. His one hope was to be educated. And in that displacement camp, there were aid workers that would come and they were, would get the kids into some type of a schooling. And Farouk excelled in that in his academics. And it indeed proved to be his ticket out of poverty. But his education did not prove to be his ticket out of hatred and despair and hopelessness. And that hatred just burned in his soul. And then one day, he met a Christian by the name of Michael. And by the way, these names were changed because of the sensitivity of the area in which this all took place. And he was intrigued with this believer by the name of Michael because Michael had everything he didn't have. He had a sense of peace. He had a sense of joy. There was something so uniquely different in such stark contrast. He was drawn to this guy. And Michael invited him into 
a, a time, a, a weekly time of studying the Bible. And intrigued, Farouk took him up on the offer because he wanted to understand what was making this guy tick. And so Michael began to, to go through the Bible with Farouk, going through passages just like we've read or the Gospel of John. And over time in the study of the Scripture, Farouk saw the, the hatred and the hopelessness and the despair become less and less and less as he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as his only way to salvation, to eternal life. Farouk continued uh, on his journey of discipleship and of his newfound faith, and in fact, he invited a friend of his, Hakim, uh, to join this Bible study. And before long, Hakim had trusted Christ as, their pers as his personal Savior. And so the t together they continued this, this study with Michael of the Scriptures. But the story doesn't end there because as these two guys, Farouk and Hakim, began to grow in their faith, they began to have a burden for their home country, their, the, re the, the region where they had um, been forced to flee. And God placed on their heart a burden to go back to that very dangerous area and share the good news of Jesus, not with hearts full of hatred, but now hearts full of love. Farouk would say, I was raised to hate my enemies. I was filled with anger. Now Jesus has filled my heart with love and peace, the very things my people desperately need. I want to see the transformation he's done in me to reach my entire country. Today, that team of Farouk and Akeem are back in that same region, in the very dangerous region, moving about the people who he had once hated, now sharing the love of Jesus, a very dangerous work. You see, the reign of life had begun for two young men. Farouk and Akeem. The reign of Jesus, of hope. Two men, once captive by sin, once oppressed spiritually, now set free by the grace of the good news of Jesus. Just like Jesus said in his own words, it happened to Farouk and Akeem. The oppressed were released the spiritual blind now see. Those steeped in spiritual poverty have found the good news of the gospel. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, if you know him, that's our testimony too. What Jesus says here is true of us, spiritually speaking. It's a real possibility for every believer in Jesus Christ to experience this this freedom, this, this release of captivity from, from sin, from darkness, to live it out in our experience. And as children of the living God, we have been elevated out of spiritual poverty to spiritual wealth in Jesus. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the captivity of sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have received spiritual sight. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from the prison of, our, of the darkness. We are living in the favorable year of the Lord as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, 
that's why we have to be discipled in this, because so oftentimes we still act like and live like we're not experiencing that freedom and that darkness or that, that light and set free from darkness and captivity from, from sin. But that is true because no longer are we in the first Adam. We've been taken out of that and placed in the second Adam, who in his own words says, that's why I came. He anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. If we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we are identified with Him. His message of hope is ours. And so as we grow as believers, we can experience that more and more and more. But look, look around us this Advent season. Because everywhere you look, you still see people in the clutches of fear and despair and spiritual hopelessness. There is good news that our world needs to hear. And it's not good news about a vaccine. It's a good news about a Savior. Somehow, folks, in this, in this time in which we're living, we've got to I think we have to help people make the connection between the fear that they're experiencing and, and the hope, not in some governmental program or some vaccine or something that's in a Savior. That's the ultimate purpose. And somehow, we, as we move about this world of fear and despair and hopelessness, I was talking with someone in this congregation two weeks ago, um, who, whose son is in the military. We know suicides have been devastating among military people, personnel. And in the last 10 months, they've gone up 20%. In addition to the devastation already, they've gone up another 20%. There's despair, there's hopelessness in this world. Folks, we cannot sit in a church knowing that Jesus has come and in his own words has said, the favorable year of the Lord is here. There's good news to the spiritually broken poor. To the spiritually blind, he's come to give sight. To the spiritually oppressed, he's, he's come to bring freedom. And good night, if God's people can exude that, then, then who will? These are great days to share the favorable year of the Lord. These are wonderful times to help people make the link that there's hope and it's in Jesus. There's freedom and it's in Jesus. There's light and life and it's in Jesus. The Messiah has come. He came and proclaimed the favorable year of the Lord and he invites us to do exactly the same thing. I don't know about you, but I am so sick and tired 
of what's going on in the news and in the media and all the mess that this country is in. When we have a favorable year of the Lord to proclaim. Do I hear an amen? Okay. So as we leave here today, let's, let's be excited about this Advent season like maybe never before. Because we have a message of hope to the hopeless, of life to those who are dead, of light to those walking in darkness. This is why we're here on earth. Folks, the only thing we're going to take to heaven is a friend. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who will give you the, the favorable year of the Lord, his, his, his favor, His grace to shine in your life, I want to invite you right now. Don't let another day go by without experiencing the life of Jesus. He came for that purpose, to die on the cross and pay for our sins, to rise again in hope and victory. He was on Satan's turf and he came away the victor. He was on Satan's turf on the cross and three days later he rose again and he offers you the free gift of eternal life. Have you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone? And when you do, you're set free. You have a forever relationship with the living God. And it's a message that this world desperately needs to hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the message in his own words that Jesus, the, the glorious, exalted king, became the humble servant, the humble king. Lord, that you did not regard equality with God something to be jealously hung on to. But in love, you humbled yourself. You took the form of, of a man, of a, of a servant. You emptied yourself. Even to the point of, of dying on the cross and paying for our sins. As we have partaken of that in remembrance this morning, I pray as we leave here today, it'll sear in our minds that this is what the world needs to hear and that we are placed in this earth to proclaim that good news, the favorable year of the Lord has come. And so, Father, give us eyes to see this Advent season, this Christmas season, as we engage people in conversation, as we invite them to a Follow the Star event next weekend, as we invite them maybe to a Christmas Eve service that are just just in our course of conversation, we can point them to the, the glorious good news that unto us a Savior has been born. And they too can begin to experience the favorable year of the Lord. It's for this, Father, we live and breathe to glorify your name. Amen.